0: Hello everyone, welcome to my podcast. I am your host, Dane Oh. I wanted to create a podcast that would allow us to see the world through new and different perspectives by having sometimes difficult and challenging conversations by talking about race, gender, lifestyle, health, relationships, and spirituality. If you're ready to begin a journey that will push you to open your heart and push you to change your mind, then please join me On moving through and with heart. And while you're here, enjoy the music written, composed, and performed by Ivan G. Hall. Hello, everyone. I am Donna O, and my pronouns are she, her. Welcome to my podcast. Sometimes when we meet someone new, we think they are weird or strange, but maybe they're just different. My guest Angel Spicer says that she struggled following through on things that she truly cared about. And after a major life event where her marriage fell apart, she started seeing therapists that diagnosed her with ADHD this diagnosis actually saved her her life began to make sense and she began her journey of self-acceptance at first she internalized a lot and believed herself to be undisciplined and not smart but after getting support that all changed this is angel's story as you listen please remember that this is about doing it with heart i learned so much from her story It has changed how I think about relationships and how I communicate with others. I hope that it does the same for you. Perhaps after listening, you will be more open and patient with people that think differently than you do. After all, we are not all wired the same. So Angel, thank you so much for joining me and agreeing to be on this podcast to discuss neurodivergence. I thought you could first share a little bit about
1: who you are and why you agreed to do this. Yeah. Thank you again for making time for me. I feel like sometimes we're always shouting our stories into the void. And so it's so wonderful when someone says, yes, please come talk to me, tell me. So thank you.
0: You're welcome.
1: Um, Yeah. So my name's Angel. My pronouns are she, her. And I am a lately diagnosed woman on the spectrum. I'm autistic um, and I have ADHD. And uh, this is something that is very close to me because I experienced it in my family as well. Um, I come from an entirely neurodivergent family. My siblings are autistic and have ADHD and my parents are also neurodivergent i also come from a mixed family in terms of race and ethnicity my my father's family is from hawaii we're all brown filipino people <laughs> and my mother is mexican so it's an interesting blend of cultures um, that i come from and i think it's also uh not something that we typically associate <sighs> When we think of people who have autism or other forms of neurodivergence, that is not the picture that comes to mind for a lot of folks. When you conjure up sort of an imagining of what a person who lives with those conditions is like. So yeah, it's really important to me to be visible because of that combination of things and for the sake of other folks like me who probably don't see themselves represented anywhere or who struggle to have self-understanding because they feel like um, some things may not apply to them, you know? Yeah. It's just really important to be open about that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Can you walk me through what for, so for people that might be listening, what is neurodivergence and you Mm. mentioned also how you may not be the picture of what neurodivergence is
1: because I don't know what that picture is myself. So can you explain those two things for me, please? Sure. So when we talk about neurodivergence and neurodiversity, I wanna focus on the word diversity. It really just means difference. Difference in our neurotypes, different brains is what I think of. Um, when we say different though, that's usually because of the contrast with people who are what we refer to as neurotypical, the typical way of learning, thinking, expressing ourselves, typical brains. Neurodivergence can include conditions like autism, ADHD, but it also includes things like OCD. Um, obsessive compulsive disorders, PTSD, right? Traumatic stress disorders, folks who are schizophrenic, bipolar. All of these also are medicalized, pathologized terms that we describe these experiences with. Um, But you don't have to have been diagnosed, you know, by a doctor to come to understand yourself as being neurodivergent. I think a common thread that a lot of people with different brains uh, experience is just that inside feeling of being different But because it's inside you, it's not the color of your skin, your facial features, right? Maybe the language you speak. It's not outside apparent immediately sometimes. We sometimes (laughs) internalize it and begin to have like negative narratives and thoughts about ourselves. And when you first sort of identify your condition, unfortunately, there is still stigma against talking about mental health, like challenges that come up with our mental health. And folks who have these conditions, whether diagnosed or otherwise, there's often a lot of like negative associations with being potentially disabled, right? That can cause a lot of like internal conflict and pain. And uh, for me, it's really important to not just be—I uh, think of like like myself as like a lighthouse, right, for other brown, Asian, Latinx girls who might have different brains, but to also kind of. Neutralize the language around this. You know, we're not diseased. We're not dysfunctional. We are not um, deficient, but we are different. And also, too, I just want to emphasize again that divergence, neurodivergence, di, di, being divergent from what is typical, um, is not is not anything to like. I guess feel. Mm, gosh, it's not anything to feel ashamed about. I just want for folks who experience, you know, this world differently, who feel like maybe it wasn't built for them to um, not have to feel like there's anything wrong or broken with them. And neurotypical people are part of that diversity, right? This includes all of our different brains. So yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's just another form of recognizing people's differences.
0: Nice. And what do you mean by when you say that it's not, you're not your typical as far as appearance. Mm. That mean, so, what does neurodivergent normally look like? Yeah, people? So
1: there isn't really a way to see that on someone's face, right? We um, There are sometimes visible evident physical traits on a person who experiences different conditions, but that doesn't mean that that will apply all the way across the board in my own life, like I flew under the radar until I was an adult and began to struggle in ways that were unmanageable. No teacher ever recognized that I was autistic. My parents didn't, despite the fact that I had autistic um, siblings. No guidance counselor, no supervisor, nobody in any of, any of the formal institutions that I found myself in recognized this about me because I can communicate. I can express myself reasonably well. I am not evidently, right, physically impaired in any ways. There are not any visible differences about me and my body, the way I move, the way I talk that someone would have noticed, you think. There actually are. And I've learned what those are in in the years since. But um, because they didn't fit into what people assume someone with these kinds of conditions should look or act like, no one noticed it about me. And the stereotype for autism and ADHD especially in in the United States at least is of the young white hyperactive boy or the young white boy who has learning communication like social difficulties and deficiencies and in pop culture we think of like Sheldon from Big Bang Theory we think of like Sherlock we think of like I don't know if you remember the detective monk Tony Shalhoub who had like OCD we think of these like You know, brilliant, kind of mathematical, technically savvy white men, but that doesn't recognize people like me. And it doesn't recognize all of the neurodivergent folks who never had help or support who then end up incarcerated, right? Uh, They end up in the wrong side of the interaction with police. They fail out of school. They aren't supported in their jobs because no one looks at them and sees them for who they are, you know, to even be able to help themselves and potentially wouldn't value it even if they did see it. So when I talk about these things, um, it's really for people anywhere in the neurodivergent experience, but especially um, people of color and folks like me who Um, experience a blend of like all of these different kinds of identities too that impact how their neurodivergence expresses itself. Yeah, Yeah. because white men, you're
0: right. When I think about that, we've always seen brilliant white men. And then there was that show Bones where that doctor, Mm -hmm. the female white woman, she was the same character, but a white woman. (laughs) Right. So it's like this brilliance, if it expresses itself in a way of brilliance, we find a way to be okay with it. But there are other forms of neurodivergence that may not express itself in that type of brilliance. Like, you know, sure. I've noticed, I've known some neurodivergent people that may not um, look you in the eye, mm-hmm. they may, may not seem as affectionate or social. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are some of the cues, right? And then we yeah. honestly right away, we'll label them there's something wrong with them because they're not as social or, or not, used to being with people or not comfortable being around people and we look down upon them versus, or they have a hard time focusing. We negative connotation versus understanding that they're just different. And that doesn't mean that they don't have anything to contribute. They still have something to contribute. We just have to stop, pause and take a moment and see what can their contribution be. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And it takes opening up our minds and um, even being okay with the fact that productivity is not the end all be all. Our value and worth as human beings should never be rooted in what we can produce, how we generate profit, right? How we make others look and feel good. Why is there this idea that, you know, the white autistic brilliant man is valuable because of how he can solve these puzzles and like navigate these challenges that neurotypical people can't seem to solve. But then it's like, as soon as you don't have a puzzle for him what is he worth to anyone? that guy's, you know, typically portrayed as a jerk, sometimes with substance abuse problems, then he's never portrayed as having healthy relationships, right? He's struggling in all these ways, but it's not until there's some unlike unsurmountable challenge that only his genius mind can solve that suddenly he's valuable. And, you know, not all neurodivergent people are that way. They don't express themselves that way. They don't all have those traits. And so, You know, the implication then is that if you aren't like that, then you aren't valuable, Um, that there's no there's no point in recognizing or seeing you. And I love that you listed off those traits like not making eye contact, not being comfortable around others, because those things describe me. If I'm ever able to get along with others, it's because I've taught myself how to for short bursts and periods of time. I really do fake looking people in the eyes. I've learned how to mimic neurotypical social behaviors in order to make other people comfortable with me, in order to be successful at my role at my job. But those things don't come naturally to me. Um, I'm very lucky in that I'm the kind of person who could learn and fake that kind of stuff. But again, not all neurodivergent people can, and I don't believe that we should expect them to really. I know no. there's that
0: TV show, The Good Doctor, and that's probably getting more towards. I know it's still a white male again, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. he is probably, I think, more towards. I don't. I hate to say what your typical person would be, but in the the level of Aspergers that I've come to be acquainted with, that. Sure. That he really d- is challenged with all these social skills so much so that at least in the show they've showed where some people cannot even do not know how to manage and, and how they have struggled. So at least we yeah. have some kind of signs. Is that and believe it or not, that show was taken from a Korean drama. Really, so it was a it's a spin off. It's a spin off of a Korean That's TV so show that I haven't had a chance. I keep. I love korean tv so much um but i keep yeah, I saying i'm gonna watch of it. hours
1: of k drama so please tell me what me too. Is. I love to we'll it.
0: To, we will totally have to have a conversation <laughs> yeah. about that that i'll have to go back and look at that mm. original show and see what happens that it's an asian culture but that show is taking off of that and it seems to be um, yeah. at least they're starting to show some more of the struggles versus the acceptance right i think see i'm so ways. interested
1: i really want to watch this k drama now because I think another thing that held me back from being recognized as autistic and having the sorts of learning struggles I did as a kid was because the town that I grew up and went to high school with was a small conservative, pretty much all white town in Alabama, outside a military base, where I think people had very, very rigid, limited ideas of what someone who looks like me should be like. Mm. And again, we talk about these stereotypes, right? What do folks think of when you're asked to imagine, you know, a young Asian woman in the United States, what does she look like? How does she behave? What is her Mm -hmm. relationship like with her family? And I'm not any of those things either. (laughs) And so, but I think that people's insistence on only seeing me a certain way, in addition to their limited ideas of what a neurodivergent person is, made them incapable of recognizing me. And I internalized a lot of that stuff for a long time. It's why I worked so hard to learn how to mask in professional settings, in work settings, but ultimately those kinds of things are unsustainable. I think that as much as we now as a society, especially in the last couple of years, are talking about developing within ourselves cultural humility requires education and empathy, right? recognizing and valuing differences in people's cultures. Um, I think yeah. that we can develop a, a humility and fluency and empathy around this topic as well. When I describe to my neurotypical friends, the difference between potentially myself and them, maybe we're having some sort of communication struggle, we're not meeting the middle. I ask them to pretend that they're talking to someone from a different country in a different language. What I understand to be polite and, you know, quote unquote, normal and acceptable and how I might express myself is going to be informed by my brain, right? Just the same way that maybe a person from another culture might do. And then the way you might understand someone from a different culture and try to reply back to them, you know, you're going to, we're going to have these things that get lost in translation and it can make for humor, but it can make for also a lot of pain and tension where that there's still gaps there and and we don't meet each other in the middle. Um, But that's the best way I know to describe it. You know, if you're ever like, man, I just don't get this person. Like how, what the heck are they even talking about? I don't understand why they feel this way or what they're trying to say to me. Have the same sort of curiosity and empathy for them um, as a neurodivergent person, as you would maybe for someone from a totally different culture than yours. I think it makes things go a lot more smoothly.
0: I love this example so much. Imagine if we just considered for a moment that the people that we meet that might think differently from us or from a different country or someone that speaks a different language. Would you be more likely to communicate with them with humility? Would this make you connect to them differently? Would you be more patient and understanding? What if we began to approach each other with humility, but also authentic curiosity? How would that change our interactions and the connections that we make? Just think about it. That's such a good way to see it. You know, it's funny. I did a podcast with um, a Buddhist priest. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she described as far as we were talking about the mind and how to quiet the mind for meditation, she says, what we have to understand is that the brain is a sensing organ. Which means it's never going to turn off because it's a sensing organ. And what you just said actually made me think about that because the way our brain senses things, it's only going to be able to really sense and understand things that are from our own experience. And so when we walk into something that's not our experience, it's going to have a hiccup. This is mm-hmm. like, what if the, the month it's, it's going to number one do is try to revert back and connect what it's seeing to something that it's seen before. Mm-hmm. And if there's nothing yes. in the file cabinet, then it doesn't know what to do with what it's seeing or it may not even see it at all. Like you said, they may not see you or recognize it because it has nothing to relate it to. Yes. And so until it can find something to relate it to, it doesn't know how to function. Yeah, and so I could see it just that it's so interesting and amazing to me if we just take a pause for a moment and just think about how big that is. Mm-hmm. That if we are functioning in the world with something that is a sensing organ, what does it do when it can't sense what it sees? We don't know what we don't know. Right? Exactly. We just don't. That's so huge, right? That's like so huge. Like, wow. Yeah. So tell me, how did they, how did you discover you said you didn't know you were neurodivergent, even though you grew up in a neurodivergent family, you did yes. not know you were neurodivergent until you were an
1: adult. My mid, mid twenties. Yeah. How did you discover that? What happened? I wish it had been under better circumstances. Uh, but frankly, I had a marriage fall apart and I was struggling at work. I was struggling in my friendships and I was at a loss because all of the tools up until that point in my life that I had developed to, I thought helped me thrive, but were really just helping me cope, stopped working. I had no more useful tools in my toolbox. And so I started looking left and right and thinking to myself, like, well, some, something else has got to, got to give because I'm doing my best and, and this isn't working. Why am I still struggling? Why am I still having these meltdowns? Why can't I just go to a party with my friends and have a good time. Why is it that I get accused of, of rigid thinking sometimes that to me is absolutely logical, but is clearly very hurtful to others. Like I just kept coming up against these walls where it was made evident to me that the thing that was, you know, wrong was myself. Is it because you weren't connecting
0: emotionally? Is it because you were not connecting emotionally in ways that people your average person was expecting you to connect emotionally? Do you, do you yeah. Well, ab- I was
1: certainly attempting to connect, but I right. don't know if the people I was trying to connect with could recognize it. Okay. And I also didn't have the self-awareness to understand why that wasn't working. Right. Okay. And so it wasn't until I got into therapy and started, you know, undergoing some very expensive <laughs> analysis with a psychiatrist That all of these things from when I was a kid started to come up. And when we were children, that's the last time, you know, before you take on the stresses and pressures of being an adult, that you really were like yourself purely without Mm. any limits or caps on you. Right. And I remember as far back as I have awareness, always feeling different from other people around me, but not from your family members but not from my family members. Okay. I felt like as much as there was conflict in the family, we always sort of got each other. And when I would leave the house, it, I felt like an alien on another planet. I you grew I, up
0: in Alabama. So I'm going to just play devil's advocate for a minute. Because okay, sure. you are an Asian woman, yeah, half Asian, half yes. um, Latinx, and grew up in Alabama. I mean, that's already, I mean, if I grew up (laughs) in Alabama with my parents, I think I would feel like a odd ball too. Yes. Yeah. And how is it, how is it that different then? I mean, why would it make you think that it was something that was that your brain was different versus just being from another culture? Sure. Up in,
1: you know what I mean? Growing I love up in that Alabama. you're asking this question because this is directly related to the folks that I'm hoping see me when I talk about this. For so much of my life, I thought that the conflict between myself and others was related to my culture and my ethnicity and the fact that I grew up surrounded by white folks who had no context for understanding who I was. Right. Right. And for a long time, I had a lot of bitterness about that. I became closed off um, and I struggled to make and keep some kinds of friends like it was just rough. But I, the, the added layer of this being, um, something different about my brain came about after I had gotten to a point in my life where frankly, I had adapted, and this is just a different form of masking that people of culture and uh, people of color in this country have to do all the time, where you speak a different way at work, you talk a different way around switching you're code code switching. switching right you're not with your people so you put on this sort of like artificial version of yourself that at the end of the day is meant to mitigate harm it's supposed to help us get along and participate in a system that doesn't acknowledge and value us and we do it for a reason it's a survival tactic i thought that's what I was doing but eventually even that stopped working for me mm-hmm. and it was under it was unearthing masking I was doing in a different way it wasn't just the cultural masking. It was also, you know, this neurodivergent masking, which is why I take it back to, you know, just pretend that you're talking to someone from a different culture, because well, a different country or a, a, different, it's country, probably, yes, right, a different country, right? That doesn't speak yes. English the same way, right? Yes, because even that level of masking wasn't helping me get by. It stopped working, and I was like, "There's just got to be something else to this." And then, as I started to learn more about, you know, my siblings' experiences. I started to learn more about what autism actually looks like, what ADHD actually looks like. I started immersing myself with other neurodivergent people predominantly in my social life. I was able to look back on life experiences I'd had in a totally different way and go, oh my God, this absolutely makes sense. Now for the first time in my life, pieces started to click together to make sense of a timeline of what I felt like was just conflict and struggle that I never really had answers or resolution to. And now I look back and I kind of have to grieve those things. Right. The things that I'll never have the chance to kind of go back and revisit or sort out or whatever. But at least now in my mind, it makes total sense Mm. why, at least on my end of things, I experienced things a certain way or why I felt compelled to try to express or communicate, you know, certain ideas in a certain way. And also help me give grace to people who didn't understand me and forgive them a little bit because they didn't know either. They were ignorant also. So yeah, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, ton of medical debt later. And I have this awareness of myself. So, (laughs) wow, that's
0: incredible story. So you said that you were able to recondition yourself so that you could have better relationships. Tell me about that, because that just seems like such a hard thing. Most people think they can't move past things you know and they seek a lot of help but mostly we really think we can't recondition ourselves to be in certain environments and I think Mm -hmm. that particularly people that fall on the spectrum of Asperger's and being autistic we a lot of times think that they'll never be able to have successful relationships or they cannot be um, Mm -hmm. in social situations. I always thought you know when my daughter was growing up we carpooled with some kids that were, um, had Asperger's. And I truly believe that it was okay for them to be who they are. At the same time, there had to be some kind of conditioning to help them be in the world with other people so they could Mm. be accepted. And I really am kind of torn with that because it almost feels like we're asking them to code switch. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we should be doing that. But I think it's just like, but if you think of it in context of, you know, you're going to, let's say a work event, you know, that you're gonna put on your networking hat or have to put on your manager hat or leadership hat in order to show amongst these people is the same sort of thing. It's like, how could they learn how to follow certain social cues in order to be in the world? I always thought that they could at least be taught that even if they didn't understand it. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, I do understand. for me, the very first thing I had to do before I even could start to consciously work on that for myself was to ask the question, why, why neurotypicality is the standard? Why Mm -hmm. is it? Mm -hmm. And where does that come from? Why is it that a certain way of communicating and behaving is the default standard, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's informed, By white supremacy, like so many other things, right? I
0: I cannot, I have to tell you, I cannot (laughs) believe that every time I have these conversations and I do this podcast, it is not never my intention, like to start talking about race. Somehow, it always comes up in all of my my interviews. Like wow, wow, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, (laughs) I try not to. I I try to be resilient in the face of some white folks like exasperation when that happens over and over again. And I can have a sense of humor about it now where you want to get to the root cause of some struggles and conflicts. And, and it's the same villain every time you pull back the curtain and there he is white supremacy, like every single time. Um, but anyway, well, it you know? shapes so much of it's shapes so much of how the world
0: works and functions, the patriarchy. Mm-hmm white supremacy, it literally has laid the foundation on how we move through the world. And I think now we're just waking up, realizing that there's so many different ways to move. We do not need to follow that same rule anymore. Right. And the beautiful thing is I think the world, um, I know that there's so many things that need to change, but I think that there's doors opening up that saying that it's okay for us to start, or we're insisting that we can mm-hmm. start moving through the world a little bit differently, right? And the, yeah, space is being created for that
1: um, uh, so much yeah. more
0: now than they used to be. So I think that you know, hopefully, we'll begin to see that start to shift a little bit. You know,
1: yeah. And we're making that space by having conversations yep. like this, right? right? Correct. So, Correct. so yeah. So I pulled back the curtain. I saw good old white supremacy again, and I went, "Ah, it's you again." all right. And then once I recognized that I was able to decide that it would be a conscious choice on my part in the future, whether or not I was ever going to adapt myself for certain environments or people. And, um, you know, that's, that is based on like, whether or not I have to right? like sometimes at my job, I've just got to, how much control do I have over my environment? And sometimes I don't, you know, I don't enjoy being in certain kinds of social situations So I just don't go. I think there's a lot of social pressure sometimes to participate in certain ways. But once I got to a point where I was really comfortable with myself and I could just say, is this really integral to building or maintaining my friendships? This thing that I'm being asked to go to? Not really. Am I just going to feel sick and miserable by putting myself through it? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'm not going then. And it was as simple as that. Sometimes we don't always have that choice. um, But really taking the time to examine every situation in my life And try to find where I could exercise my autonomy made me feel like I had so much more control over things. Mm. And then after a couple of years of doing that, naturally people started to come into my life who I connected in more healthy ways with people who could recognize me for who I was, see the value in that, accept it, who were comfortable with our difference, who didn't center their ego, you know, in our interactions and who, um, I have like really beautiful friendships and relationships with now where I have to do those kinds of, I have to make those kinds of adaptations less and less and less to the point where now I find that I only really have to do it at work and not so much at all at home or in my personal life.
0: In exploring the things that Angel actually loved to do, she was able to bring new people into her life that matched her interests, could relate to her and accept her for who she truly is. This is a great demonstration of how we can change our lives to become more fulfilling. If only we all had the courage to take a chance to just start doing the things that we love to do and go in search of what I call our tribe, how much more rewarding life would be. Maybe we would then stop chasing all of the things outside of ourselves and begin focusing on what really matters.
1: That's awesome. Um, but I'm so very fortunate in that, I recognize,
0: yeah. So it sounds to me like... Um, I think this is a big deal, what you just said, because it sounds to me like what you started to do is to go discover the things that you enjoy doing and you Mm -hmm. wanted to do, and you started doing those things and stopped doing social interactions that you did not enjoy. And so as you started to explore more and more of what you did enjoy, you begin creating those relationships and meeting people that were more accepting and that like to do the things that you did so that yeah. you don't need to put your consistently, put yourself in situations that made you miserable.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really. That's awesome, my, I love that. Yeah, and again, I just want to emphasize how fortunate I am because I am not the kind of person whose conditions are so severe that I require a caretaker or you know extra direct help at work or at home or anything like that. This is, there are degrees, specifically when we're talking about autism, there are degrees and levels of autism is sometimes Mm -hmm. how it's described now. My younger sibling was diagnosed as being on the spectrum. The term that we use to refer to it was Asperger's. Some people still use that term. It's what they feel most comfortable identifying with, maybe because that's what they were initially diagnosed with. But generally we refer to that now as autism one, right? And it's from a needs perspective, instead of saying that that person is high functioning, right? It's like a low key, like dig at how they don't need as much help, you know, potentially as another disabled person. Um, Well, we will refer to them as maybe low needs, Asperger's refers to, oh, this is really gross and uncomfortable. He's a Nazi eugenicist who worked on identifying and eliminating autistic children during the third Reich for Hitler. Um, he that's where
0: the name Asperger's
1: came from. Yes. Oh, that's he was, horrifying. He was, he was a Nazi yeah, doctor. Horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and not everybody knows that history. It's becoming more commonly known now. And this is not to, you know, I guess, get down on how anybody chooses to identify again at at some point in your life, that's the language that you're given to describe yourself, right? So for anybody who continues to want to use that word for themselves, you know, that's their choice. But for anybody else listening that this may not apply to, I just want to make you all aware of that language and how some people do really find it uncomfortable um, and that there are more neutral uh, considerate terms to use when we're describing these experiences and conditions, I guess. But yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really uncomfortable term for some people anyway. We
0: should not use the term Asperger's when referring to someone. The stereotypes and negative connotations of high-functioning or low-functioning is awful and degrading. I, too, have used these terms when speaking about someone, and I am now completely appalled. Angel made me see how degrading it is, and how dare we decide who is high-functioning or low-functioning? What does that really mean anyway? Whose standards should we measure someone's functioning by? A Nazi genesis? Oh my God. How disgusting. If you could only have seen my face after learning that fact. Again, this is white supremacy showing up and conditioning us not to accept others, separate us and make some groups of people better than others. Uh,
1: you could say like, you know, I, I would have been one of those kids if I'd been recognized earlier, I would have been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome or autism one. I'm somebody who is very low needs, um, does not require direct assistance or help with a lot of my life. But that also then means that the ways I do struggle tend to go unseen. I'm not autistic enough for people to look at me and go, Oh yeah, she's definitely autistic. Right. But I'm also not typical enough to get along in most environments and with most groups of people, just in general situations. So let's
0: talk about that for a second. Cause I think that this is really interesting because one, I think people need to understand that not everyone is going to share that mm-hmm. they have any type of neurodivergence and neurodivergence can be ADD, ADHD. Yep. We talked about it earlier, how many um, different diagnoses fall underneath neurodivergence, but so some people will offer that information and some people won't. But I mm-hmm. think we have to, as a society, begin to become more conscious. I think as a society, we have to be conscious that there are so many stigmas attached to different yeah. um, neurover- neurodivergent labels mm-hmm. that people will not share because they're afraid. Yeah. What are some things that we can look for that may signal to us that somebody may be neurodivergent, even if they don't want to share that may let us know. And then we can also talk about how we can begin to maybe accommodate that, but what are some things that we can look for that might tell us?
1: Well, again, going back to my own experience, and we're talking about autism, there is that saying, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. There are a lot of, you know, portrayals in pop culture of what that might look like. Um, but I would encourage everybody listening to not take that as your standard of informing what you might look for um, in neurodivergent people. I think this is like such a broad spectrum of experiences. There really is no one way. To like look and identify somebody who might be neurodivergent of of any kind. But I think like a good place to start is to have an attitude of openness and curiosity and humility. So, a great example of an interaction like this is at my job. Um, I had a coworker interacting with a client who was demonstrating some, uh, unusual behavior. Right. And it's a lot of the things that you just listed off today. It was a lack of eye contact. This person was speaking in sort of a monotone um, way. They had kind of a turned in body language. And I recognized immediately what was happening with this person because they felt like my sibling. Like I knew that person almost, you know, they also were wearing uh, it, it's like a STEM jewelry. It's, it's a piece of like a safe toy to chew on. Um, they were wearing around their neck and I recognized that that was too, it was in the shape of like a Lego, but I knew what it was sometimes, um, when we are doing these like repetitive self-stimulating behaviors, it can involve like nail chewing and things like that. And it's safer to chew on something like that than it might be to chew at your own skin or your hair or a shirt or something. And so I recognized all these things about this person and the interaction went fine. But when the client left, my coworker came to me and said, man, that person was so weird. Right. They were like, totally weird. What do they teach kids these days? Like she couldn't even look me in the eyes. (laughs) And I, and I asked them to pause and I go, Hey, like, why did that feel weird to you? Did that person say anything malicious or unkind to you? Were they hurtful to you? And this person said, no, none of those things. I said, okay, well, you clearly had some sort of like adverse response and you're feeling a type of way about how they behaved. Like what was going on. And I just got really curious with them first about their response to this person and how they were behaving. And then I just had to kind of gently and compassionately inform them. Well, cool. You just, you were dealing with an autistic guest who didn't need to tell you that, you know, (laughs) didn't, there was no real reason for her to disclose that, but here are all these things that you didn't recognize. And I I can't really expect that you would have recognized in that situation because you didn't know The problem is not in the ignorance, the problem is in how we respond to new things when we encounter them, how we treat people when they are different from how we are like used to seeing or um, when they behave in a way that we're not exactly comfortable with. And realizing that sometimes that discomfort is not because we are potentially unsafe or anything like that in a situation, but because that is like an internal defensive response to, to, to something new that we're encountering that we don't understand. And I think if you can adopt just generally an attitude of curiosity and humility, it's okay to not know things, to encounter stuff where you maybe don't recognize what's going on, because um, that attitude will ensure that that can you know remain a learning experience. But then also it just feels respectful for everybody involved. I think um, we're also
0: a fear. I think we're also afraid. I think when we're faced with people that are different you know, right away, I think because because we are based on animal behavior, it's to run, yeah. right? Like attack right. or run. I think that animal brain automatically goes into that place because it's like, I don't know what this is. This may not be safe. And so we go into a protective mode and mm-hmm. um, we kind of shut down. I think that faced with someone or something that's different than we've ever experienced before, it can be very challenging for us to remain open. I think we have to learn how to just take a pause and do a self check-in and evaluate why am I feeling this way? And what Mm -hmm. can I do differently in this moment? You know what I mean? Because it's Mm -hmm. like, for instance, if we're a hiring manager, we're wanting to hire someone who, and by the way, there are a lot of companies that are hiring people that are neurodivergent now. It's a big deal yes. that they've figured out how to adapt their hiring, pro- their hiring practices, as well as training practices to hire people that are neurodivergent, which is great. But if we're personally faced with that, you know, having someone who won't look us in the eye and won't connect to us the way we need to, sometimes we have to take that first step. And realizing what's going on. And we can't just assume that these people that can't do that in the moment aren't capable of ever doing it
1: or that they don't
0: have something else to offer and Mm -hmm. become very shut down immediately. But I think that that coworker of yours, you know, there could have been some fear there. And right away, we want to talk about our fear because it's our way of also getting it out of our bodies. Right. We have to start talking about it and sharing right Mm -hmm. away because we're so uncomfortable and we can't stay still with that discomfort. So we have to get it out. Yeah. We start talking about it. And when we start talking about it, we're not conscious of how we're talking about it. But you getting conscious, probably also you getting curious, rather, probably also made her a bit embarrassed going, oh, well, now I'm not being kind to another person, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, all these things are happening in that moment, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, it's a bit of an emotional moment as well. I would hope though that the way moment. I,
1: yeah, the way I handled it with them means yeah. that one, they are going to take a breath and decenter yeah. themselves in a situation like that in the future. But I'm glad also that I had the kind of relationship with them, that they trusted me to hear that from me and not react with like further defensiveness to what I was saying, Mm -hmm. um, because I know they'll never forget it now. They're going to find themselves in similar situations in the future and they're going to remember. And. Um, I think the first step before looking for visible signs of neurodivergence is really just trying to adopt an attitude like we would about anything else where you work really hard not to respond to other human beings with any type of prejudice if you can. And that's hard. That's really, really hard for all of the reasons that you just described, right? It is a survival instinct to respond to people in our world sometimes in order to protect ourselves. But I think in most situations, we are safe. We're not at risk of harm. And you have more to gain and more to learn and um, more to grow from as a person if you're able to learn to pause and take that breath and then decenter yourself in that interaction and just get really, really curious.
0: I hope we can begin to ask more questions and get curious with one another. If you think someone is not listening before you assume that they aren't, maybe ask them if they are and what they have heard take a moment, dig a little deeper into how they are understanding or interpreting what you are saying. What are they hearing you say? From here, we can begin to create better relationships with more meaning and a deeper understanding for one another. What are some of the challenges for someone who's
1: neurodivergent? And how can we maybe begin Mm -hmm. to get past that? Um, Well, I mean, aside from encounters like this, right, where people Mm -hmm. might respond to you with prejudice, And the challenges I described before, where we are pressured to mask and hide ourselves, as well as just the societal stigma that we've also referenced, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, is the fact that institutionally, like the resources that are available to people are sometimes conditional, and it's cruel in the ways that they're conditional. And there's not ready access and support in places where there should be, but also where there could be it's a lot easier, I think, than people assume. When we talk about other visible forms of disability that require accommodation, for example, a person who um, needs to use a wheelchair, right? Uh, It seems like a simple solution to just put in a ramp into entrances and exits and um, have elevators working all the time. But when we think about accommodations for neurodivergent people, it's not as obvious because those fixes are sometimes invisible, right? They happen in relation to others. They happen in our policies and procedures. They happen, they they are often people resources that are needed, right? There's not a tool that you can give to a person with ADHD yeah. that would fix their ADHD and make them suddenly able to do their job without struggle. Right. I think it's a big thing to know too. It's yes. not like all of a sudden
0: there's a magic magic wand that we can wave.
1: Yeah, there yeah. truly isn't. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Folks with ADHD listening probably <laughs> know that being offered some new snazzy calendar is not going to fix your issues Correct. with right. time management executive dysfunction those kinds right. of things right right um, yeah and so i think that the challenges when it comes to accommodation at work at school and in other places are that they really have to be people people led they aren't tools they're not they're not simple that is that's not to minimize right the sorts of accommodations that i described before Um, But it's just an added layer of challenge, especially when the people responsible for providing those accommodations can't relate to your experience, even if they are educated, even if they um, are doctors, right, working within the medical system. Even those things are very misogynist, very racist. Psychiatry itself, in my personal opinion, is incredibly ableist because we treat people with divergent conditions as if they are deficient. Right. That's related to typical people. Versus having
0: something else to offer that might be different.
1: Right. Is the way a person experiencing this world truly a problem? If it's not causing themselves or anyone else harm.
0: Right. You know, where's the, where's the true heart in that? Right. Like where we, how are we heart centered? If we're going to approach someone with there's something wrong with you, because now you're Mm -hmm. neurodivergent versus no, there's, you're just different. I remember, um, So I remember one year I hired someone who was autistic for the holiday season. And one of the things, and she was so lovely. I mean, I actually hired her two years in a row. And one of the things I think very, having really clear communication is extremely Mm -hmm. helpful. I asked her upfront, okay, so tell me what it is that you need from me. What are some of, do you have triggers? Like we really had this conversation. What that I question! Yeah, I wish that was normal
1: for us to ask that of each other. Yeah, That's I great. asked
0: her, do you have triggers or and or and how will I know? Will it be something that you can share with me? Or there's something that I need to look for?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and how is there anything that I need to do to accommodate her? And she was really and she was not somebody who looked at you in the eye. She was someone who just spoke when she felt like speaking, you know, I love
1: this person already. Yeah.
0: Very highly (laughs) intelligent. And, um, she also had a little bit of physical disability, like one of her Mm -hmm. arms or hands didn't open up the same way, but we were able to have a really good conversation about what she needed and how, and I was able to, at that time, because I had so many more staff during that type of year, we were able to accommodate her and make it work. And it actually was great. She ended up running my, um, registers, at that time, mostly Mm -hmm. that's what she did because she needed more of a contained type of area, but I thought it worked great. And we actually brought her back the, the, the following year. And she was just so lovely. Um, she did sometimes when she took break disappear because she had in her mind of something that she wanted to do, but didn't tell anybody else. So I was like, (laughs) where is she right now? It's been like 30 (laughs) minutes.
1: Where did she go? Somebody (laughs) needs
0: to go find her. And it, you know, it's kind of interesting. So this is just a really great story about how we assume. So I was calling her on the phone saying, you've been gone a really long time. Where are you? And she goes, well, I'm at Starbucks. I'm like, okay, you don't have to. going to stand on the Starbucks line. You have to get back. But do you know mm-hmm. what she was doing at Starbucks, standing online? What was she doing?
1: Getting me a gift card to say thank you. See, and it's, it's the idea that her priorities right. were different, but she's no less loving or capable yes. of demonstrating those like efforts at connection yes. with others that we're yes. all doing It just yes. had you assumed or maybe give, not given her the opportunity to explain what right. she was doing up there right. you right. might have thought oh she's like she's avoiding slacking off coming back to job. she's slacking off she's there she she's can't back. focus she can't pay attention right. she gets distracted right.
0: too easy and so yeah that just really stilled my heart like that was really you know hmm but I tried my best to have that open dialogue, you know. Yeah. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that I'm glad that, that she was actually able to to tell you. because um, I'm sure that kind of took the tension out of that conversation too. We were like, well, I, you'll get back when you get back. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> I
0: know? mean, what am I gonna do? Right? Like, right. what yeah. am I gonna do at that time? So it was really Awesome. So I've been doing a little bit of my own research and there is a website called the Employee Assistance and Rescue Network on Disability Inclusion. Mm. And some of the things that they talked about is that neurodivergent people tend to have keen accuracy and ability to detect errors high levels of concentration, strong recall and detailed factual knowledge, reliability and persistence, technical strengths, and appreciation for routine and rep- repetition, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was awesome because I think we automatically, One, I want to celebrate those strengths because I think if you have someone who doesn't connect to you emotionally or look you in the eye, we automatically think that this person is not capable of doing much at all, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to um, celebrate those differences as well as the strengths. Um, but, and, and they see them as they're really great as software engineers and tech operations and data entry and filing product management. Um, But I also want to also say that we should not assume that even though companies are recognizing this and really changing their policies and procedures and the way they do things to hire people with this type of skill set, I also want to recognize that not all neurodivergent people are the same and may all
1: have this type of skill set. Yeah, they may share some of those strengths. um, But even, you know, again, going back to everybody being individuals, it's going to express itself differently. Um, We talk about um, autism being a spectrum, right, Uh, of severity. And I think a lot of people maybe picture something linear, a point at which, you know, maybe like me, I would be traditionally understood as close to this end where um, the way I experience my autism does not limit me in ways that like keep me from holding down a job, for example, versus folks on this end of the spectrum who are potentially nonverbal, right? They use alternative methods of communication. Maybe they need daily assisted help um, in their lives at home. But I think of the spectrum more as being like a stat web. I don't know if you play video games or if anybody listening plays video games, but you'll sometimes have like a web um, of many different traits and characteristics of a person, right? Your charisma, your dexterity, your intelligence, your wisdom, any like tabletop board game nerds out there will know what I'm talking about. And the spectrum, if we're thinking of it in terms of that web, means that you will express yourself more heavily and less intensely in certain parts of those webs, of that web that goes out in all different directions, not just in one linear line, right? And so um, for me... I am incredibly emotional. I think that most neurodivergent people are deeply empathetic people um, because of our experiences, but also because of how we feel and experience our emotions. We're also very creative. We tend to be big picture seers. Um, As much as you describe that attention to detail and like an affinity for repetition, you, we also understand how the whole machine is put together, right? We understand the project at the end and what we're trying to build. And so, for myself, I've never been good at math. I just start to see numbers descend like I'm in the matrix. Like it's just static to me. I really don't um, like, I don't, I, don't, I don't picture things well like that. Um, but I am someone who I feel like maybe at work uh, challenges my peers and supervisors because I'm always questioning tools. I think neurodivergent people are um, dynamic culture shifters, right? We think in ways that typical folks just don't. And that moves our culture in art as well as in science in really cool ways. When we talk about like autistic people specifically, there's this stereotype that uh, folks on the spectrum are not empathetic and I don't think that's true like I just said we're deeply empathetic it's just harder for us to recognize how others are feeling maybe or what they're experiencing and to connect with them but once we do you will not have a more loyal friend you will not have a more loving friend a committed friend than somebody on the spectrum or or any neurodivergent person frankly as long as you're able to see them as a whole human um, one of my dearest, Uh, people in my life, someone I love a lot has pretty intense obsessive compulsive disorder. Their brain is not like mine, but the fact that we're able to make space for each other and kind of understand each other makes our bond and our friendship so much more close, even though we don't have a whole lot else in common than with so many of my other friends because of that shared empathy. It's really, really special. And I uh, wish and hope that that specifically is something that um, neurotypical folks will start to recognize and value and learn to see other expressions of that empathy um, with their neurodivergent family and friends and coworkers specifically. Emotional intelligence, it it is something we have to work to develop. And I think that's really what I'm describing, right? In all of these ways that we have to get curious and like learn to connect with folks, you know, in ways that maybe we're not used to or that don't come naturally to us, that is growing our emotional intelligence. Um, And I think being open to seeing neurodivergent folks as more than these stereotypes um, will allow us to see their full value as humans, but also how they can be valuable in workplaces. And I think, you know, creative spaces are places where we don't talk about that too much yet. Um, I am successful at my job because of my ability to connect emotionally and to be empathetic. Probably supervisors in the past would say it it has held me back. Maybe I gave someone two, three, four or five chances too many before letting them go when it was appropriate, for example. But, you know, I had conversations with those people that maybe nobody had ever had with them. And, And ultimately, even though they didn't continue working for me, we both still learned a lot and grew from that experience. And it made our work culture different than places where nobody would have asked them those questions or given them a chance or cared enough to to ask, you know?
0: Well, I think that really at the end of the day, people, you said something about loyalty is um, I think that comes through that acceptance. And I think at the end of the day, people really need to be seen yeah. and heard no matter who yeah. they are. And especially people that have been marginalized need to be seen and heard no matter what. And I, because we're so used to not experiencing that. Yeah. And if you're a neurodivergent and a marginalized person, you know what I mean, of a mm-hmm. different ethnic group, you have it tenfold, right? Mm-hmm. And that we really need that. And everyone really wants to be experienced for who they fully are. So yeah. what are some things that, you know, what are some things that we can start to do? what are some things that you think if we wanted to get out here and people listening, wanting to begin to be more accepting, how do we begin to do that and maybe change these spaces for people that are neurodivergent? Yeah.
1: Well, I think that neurodivergence overall is also a spectrum. Okay. Even folks who might think of themselves as being typical are probably less typical than they imagine. Right. I went my whole life until my late twenties not thinking that there was anything different about my brain. I had actually internalized all those differences as character deficiencies on my part. When I struggled and failed at something in my mind, I told myself it's because I was lazy, because I wasn't as disciplined as other people, because I wasn't as smart as other people. I would say these really horrible things to myself, but now that I sort of have the user manual for my brain and I understand that I'm different, I was able to stop speaking so unkindly to myself and stop internalizing the criticisms that would be leveled against me in challenging situations from other people who didn't understand as well. Um, so I think the first thing we can do is not say that kind of stuff about each other. Just just stop, ask questions before you're quick to label someone as perhaps lazy, right? Or checked out. Um, those sort of moralizing statements that we make and generalizations about each other's character can be really harmful if it's not really backed up by like a demonstrated pattern of behavior. Like someone who's gonna be a jerk to you probably is a jerk overall, right? But someone struggling to stay focused in a conversation, um, but who can tell you verbatim back what you said to them, right? Maybe they're not looking you in the eyes, but they know exactly what you said. That person isn't checked out and not listening. They're just listening in a different way that you might not be able to recognize. And so I think doing some work with ourselves first to um, examine why we have these ideas, these judgmental, like moralistic ideas about um, human behavior, thinking about ourselves in a a neutral way, too, and maybe being learning to be kind to ourselves, that we can be kind to others. Anytime you feel like you're being lazy, for example, really think about that. Like, Are you being lazy or do you just need rest? Are you being lazy or are you disengaged from what other people told you should be important to you, right? These sorts of things are indicators of what we actually need. And so before we're quick to put that on others, maybe ask ourselves all those questions first, um, because I think it'll make it easier for us to recognize neurodivergence in others and also have some humility about it because we'll be able to understand that we're not as quote unquote normal as we maybe wish we were (laughs) and that that is okay. And there's really no point in trying to force ourselves to be. It just is, it's, it's, It's a futile experiment and I love that. I love that
0: because really what you're saying is the more we can begin to love and accept ourselves, the work Mm -hmm. begins with us personally. We can begin to open up more space for people that are different than we are. Mm-hmm. And that is the, really the biggest thing Then it, the more ex- self-acceptance we have, the more, the less likely people that may not look us out the eye in the eye or connect, need to connect to us emotionally will bother us because we will have given those things to ourselves first. Yeah, and I think that that's that the distance, bigger, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the bigger picture of this for me. I always like to look at everything from a more spiritual perspective, mm-hmm. because I think at the end of the day, everything comes from that. And it's like looking at, we're all on the planet for a reason. We all came here for a reason. And there's a reason why our society is having to shift in so many ways and the way it is shifting now to accept so many different types of people. And we are shifting in some spaces to accept people that are more neurodivergent, but this is beautiful, because I think this is giving us more of a map of, this is where we're going to have to go, period. If we want to accept people of different races, different ethnicities, different genders, you know, now different brain types. Yeah. Have to be able to love deeper, open up our hearts more, move through that heart and connect in that way in order to do that. And that begins
1: with self. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. And this is why, I'm so passionate about talking about this um, almost to the point where I, I'm, I'm sure I exasperate some people around me because it's all in all, it's all I can go on and on and on about It is my special interest. Right. But it is the thing that gives me purpose now up until having this self understanding. I would just ask myself, why am I grinding away at these various things? Like why am I putting so much effort in trying to come off as anybody or anything other than what I really am What am I here for? What am I, what am I doing? And now having this self-knowledge has made everything, like I said, make so much sense, not just in my own life, but when I think back at the history of my family as well, why generations of women in my family experienced the kinds of things that they did. I think of my grandmother specifically, um, who I look just like her. I talk just like her. I'm very direct and forthright. Um, some people have described me, if you just saw me sitting there minding my own business, not talking to anyone, they've described me as like intimidating or aloof or unapproachable or, um, I don't know, like direct and, and all of those things imply that I am not gentle, that I'm not kind right? It, it implies something as well about the expression of my gender, right? That those things are not very feminine ways to behave. They don't make people feel at ease with me. These are all things that were described about my grandmother too in her life. And I don't know if she ever had um, the kind of self-understanding that I did. If she ever was given that knowledge, she might've kept it to herself because as far as I know, she, she didn't have it. Um, And she passed a few years ago, but I think about her a lot as I am doing this kind of work and advocating for people like me, if their experiences overlap with mine in any way, shape or form to any degree, because I think of how her struggles and my family struggles might've been different if we had not just had this self-knowledge, but also like acceptance, right. Of ourselves in our family, this is generational, like ancestral healing that i'm doing here in my own life for my grandmother for her mother for you know both sides of my family and i think about women who were told that they 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 weren't behaving properly they weren't behaving like women they were too brown they were too weird they were out of place they were difficult all these kinds of things and i know that there are a lot of people now who are the same. I look around and I see my grandmother everywhere, you know, and I, <laughs> I think that, um, helping other people in this way and helping myself is also helping her. Yeah. Wow. That is so, I don't even know what to say after that. <laughs> yeah. My
0: heart just, yeah. I think that is just <laughs> beautiful. Thank you for sharing yeah. that, you know, it's healing generations and ancestral trauma and families. I think we don't really sometimes think of our purpose. Quite often, we don't think of our purpose as that. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're walking on the planet, we don't see the correlation, but we really are here as representatives of all the people that came before us, you know, that started paving the way so that we can walk upon this earth. And we don't see it as, as deep as that. And sometimes it really is for us to change the bad pattern of behavior or change the environment around us. So the people that come after us have a way and mm-hmm. create, can create a better world, right? It's not about holding on to what we used to be or what our family was. It's about how can we be more and be better and how can we create more love? Yeah. And um, that's super yeah. powerful. That's super amazing. Thank you for sharing that story. Thank you so
1: much. I'm here to be the help and the love and the guidance for teenage me who needed that and didn't have it, right? Young brown girls who look like me, who were told that they don't fit, you know, the diagnostic manual checkbox list of what we think these conditions should look like and who are given no help and no understanding and no acceptance and who are maybe struggling and in internalizing a lot of messages that are very harmful, um, to how they're trying to live their life. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's like my ultimate goal. So and I know that it's possible. So I think all the time people talk about this, like it's so difficult and it's so hard and yes it is, but I think it has to be approached with a, an optimism too and a curiosity and a resilience that i think the adverse experiences that i've had in my life sort of like uh, like olympic style trained me to be able to to take on so that that sort of resentments and 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 bitterness that i described before right when i was having these challenges experiences in my life i don't really feel that so much anymore i'm like ready to kind of give this knowledge and the support to other people and do so happily yeah that's awesome well this has been a really fantastic conversation thank you yeah. Thank you, Donay. I love you. Thanks for chatting me with me about this.
0: Oh, you're welcome. So before we end, I would love to know, is there anything that you would like to share that we maybe should know that we didn't get a chance to touch upon?
1: Yeah. Um, I hope that if listening to this conversation inspired anybody to do their own learning, that they pursue that learning anywhere they can find it. And that means that a lot of the knowledge that is gonna be most useful to you is gonna be found outside of traditional institutions and resources. I think it's found in community. So one great thing that I always recommend to folks is like go on the internet and find where there are communities of people who, share these various conditions and experiences, whether it be autism or ADHD or OCD, right? And quietly and humbly observe their conversations and listen to their experiences. Please don't insert yourself, you know, unless you're invited, but just quietly observe and listen, because you are going to learn so much more from them than you will from a medical book than you will from what a doctor has to say. I know that's, I don't know if that's like a spicy opinion or not, but yeah, just be open to the idea that you're going to find so much learning um, in places that you maybe wouldn't expect and that that's okay because these formal institutions that like to, you know, hold on and gatekeep knowledge, they are biased. They are, they don't always exist to best serve the people that, um, that we're talking about here. Um, and I think neurodivergent people are always the best folks to speak on their own experiences and to tell you about what they need and how they feel and what their lives are like. So go to them first, you know, and, um, and be open to whatever you might learn. You might learn a lot about yourself. So, well, that's what life is
0: all about, right? Really? At the end of the day, we don't realize that life is all about self Mm -hmm. It really is every experience, every relationship we've ever had really is about self, not necessarily be about the other person, even though we love and connect to those people, but really it's about our personal growth, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Angel. Oh my God. I just love this conversation so much. And thank you so much for being vulnerable and open and being willing to share so deeply about your own experience um, and putting yourself out there to help other people. So I really value that and thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Dana. You know how much I love and respect you and I just think you're the best. So thank you for talking with me today.
0: You're welcome. Well, it's another great conversation. I hope that you all really enjoyed it. I know that I really did. Maybe we aren't as atypical as we think we are. Angel's story is a story of acceptance, graciousness, and how we can begin to get curious about each other. I hope that you gained a few ahas of not just how you can develop better relationships and understanding of someone who is neurodivergent, but how to begin to have more humility and patience for each other. So many of us do not fit in a box, but we spend so much time trying to. In some ways, society has become so linear Let's begin to enjoy all of the bends and the kinks in the road and learn how to be together. You all are so beautiful in your own way because you are you. We're all different in our own way. Be you, love you, and find a way to move through the world with heart. I'm going to do something a little differently in future podcasts. And so I want to put a call out there for submissions. If you have a story that you would like to share, please send me an email with a brief synopsis of your story um, to yourstorywithheart at gmail.com. That's yourstorywithheart at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, I am your host, Donna O. Oh. Remember to love and accept yourself today. Until next time, bye bye.